welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Courtney, a white mom from Los Angeles. This is Gifts We Didn't Expect, Family, Faith, and Integration. This isn't a conversation with an expert or a scholar. It's a conversation with a dad. He's thoughtful and kind, and his story touches on a few areas that have been on our list to address on the podcast, and we're happy to be able to dig in with him on some of these. That's right. For one, we often lump white and privilege together on the podcast because they often go together, but not always. And so today we have the story of Albert, a Taiwanese-American who doesn't identify as white, but does identify as privileged. And Albert's story gives us a chance to think a bit more deeply about where privilege and whiteness overlap and, you know, where they don't. Yeah. You know, I think it's also a chance to talk about family in a way that we haven't so much yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think as you'll hear family, how it's defined, who it includes, what it asks of us are all really crucial questions in Albert's journey from the expectations of his parents to his wife's support to, you know, who he feels this familial connection to family and love really are sort of at the root of many of Albert's decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And we also talk about faith in this episode. Albert, like many in the integrated schools community, comes to his commitment to integration through his faith. Ideas of love and service and community are all shaped by how he understands his faith, how it calls him and pushes him toward justice. Yeah. He's remarkably thoughtful and intentional about the choices his family has made and um, I'm just really grateful that he was willing to share so openly and honestly with us and yeah. and excited to share this conversation and dig in deeper on our Patreon page. Huge thanks to those of you who have joined us. If you're not familiar, Patreon is a platform that allows you to support this work while also engaging with us and other listeners more directly. So head on over to patreon.com slash integrated schools. Any amount you can contribute to support not only this podcast, but, you know, the entire integrated schools network is deeply appreciated. Yes, yes. Now let's hear the episode. We're super glad to have you with us today. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm Albert. I'm a uh, dad of three children, Taiwanese-American with a mixture of other stuff in there, but uh, mostly claim Taiwanese, living in Oakland, California. Kids are in uh, one in eighth grade, one in sixth grade, and one in fourth grade. We moved into this uh, neighborhood about uh, 1998, so almost 21 years ago when I was just out of college and uh, we raised our kids here. It's a, The neighborhood is primarily Latino uh, and then Southeast Asian and African American, but with some gentrification that's been happening. The schools that the, our kids go to reflect that. So the, the elementary school is uh, about 90% Latinx with the remainder being African American, maybe 4% Asian, and then other different folks from Yemen or Afghanistan. So that's the elementary school. We just started in middle school for our son who's in sixth grade and his school is gets 99% Latinx. And then my daughter goes to a school that's more mixed, maybe like 30 to 40% white and then a mixture in the rest of this school. And, you know, socioeconomically, where are your school sitting? The middle school and the elementary school are at 95% qualify for free and reduced lunches. I, w- I would guess that the reputation of these schools in a sort of wider privileged community are probably not like great schools. You don't have white people driving from across the city to come to these schools. No. Yeah, no, these are these are not the schools that folks are... Uh, are fighting over to get into. Either they've never heard of them because they're not in the, the neighborhood or they just assume that they're not uh, quality schools because of the demographics. Yeah. So how did you choose to go to those schools? Yeah. So I grew up in the suburbs in Cupertino, which is kind of the prime public schools in the country, never having experienced very much poverty. I'm the child of immigrants. So my mom is uh, from the Philippines, Chinese from the Philippines, and my father's from Taiwan. They both came to the States to give us a great education. So I went to college, and that was the first time where I started to uh, consider that there was maybe uh, folks that were not as resourced and not as privileged as I was. And that's when I started to volunteer uh, in a tutoring program in Oakland. I realized that their educational experience was extremely different from mine. Mm -hmm. And during that time, uh, I was influenced by this guy, the leader in faith-based community development, named John Perkins. And one of his main ideas was that love does not love from a distance, that in order for love to fully kind of be the fullness of love, 
it comes close and it becomes proximate. And so out of that, uh, there was a community of people that we were wondering what it would mean to live it out. And a few folks decided to move into the actual apartments where the kids that were being tutored lived. And living in that space was kind of a decision that was motivated by that desire to figure out what does love do if it if love comes close. That we got to experience beyond just being uh, the tutor and the students. We got to experience the families that we were uh, becoming to be neighbors with as a kind of fully orbed human people. And that felt important in terms of beginning to form relationship that was beyond just a, a server and the recipient of our service. So that's how I ended up in the neighborhood. And then you know, fast forward to getting married, having kids, the next choice was just schools. And so the local school, that's actually the school that the same kids that I tutored go to. It wasn't an obvious choice for me in terms of sending our kids to school. So this, this school that was in the community that you had chosen to live in, that served the population that you had decided to be close to, right? Yeah. This, this wasn't the type of school that people with privilege were choosing for their kids or even really the type of school that your parents chose for you. Yeah. My parents, they sacrificed a lot. Um, they left their families so that both they could get an education and also they could hand down uh, like the best education they can think of for me. But it was that moment when it started to get real was when uh, I wondered if the things I'd chosen for myself and my partner we'd chosen, could I also choose that for my children, which is just a different choice. And I had a moment of crisis of thinking, am I failing as a parent? If, if the way that my parents showed me love was to give the best education they could give to me, what did it mean that I was not giving what I could obtain for my, for my kids to them? Like we could live in a different neighborhood. We could send them to a different school. If love is giving your child the best education, then what did that mean for the decision I was about to make for my kids? Um, so that I sat with that crisis for a while and it, it did feel like there was a, a choice for me between choosing for my family or choosing for the values that I believe in. Yeah. Making the choice for yourself feels somehow different than making the choice for your kids, especially given the choices that your parents made. Yeah, no, exactly. Education in the East Asian kind of families is is one of those things that you don't mess around with because mm -hmm. the reality of the immigrant experience, at least the East Asian experience, is that our parents deliberately chose to come here so that we could get a fantastic education, so that we could have something that they never had when they were growing up. It's the thing that everybody's committed to in, in, in kind of in making a different decision than what they made. There's this fear that I am by my life criticizing the choices that they made for me. And I actually don't want to do that at all. I have, actually have been thinking about this a bit is that my parents weren't wrong to give me the best education they could give me. You know, they weren't wrong in the sense of believing that family sacrifices so that the rest of our family can thrive. Your parents were giving you the best education they could. Yeah. I think there's something in how that got defined. Yeah. So honestly, I feel like that is as much as they understood of the American dream, this is what they were pursuing. So my parents, they understood that in order for them as people of color that weren't going to be respected because of the color of their skin. They needed a piece of paper, some documentation that would prove that they were qualified for the work that they were doing. So they went all the way. Both my parents have PhDs and they lived out the American dream that if you get the highest education you can, you can achieve anything. But yeah, I do think there's something that it, they also inherited, which is that it was all infused with uh, kind of a level of white supremacy. They chose neighborhoods that were all white. They saw that as the pinnacle of what it means to have made it is when you can live in a neighborhood that white people also choose. And so there are some things that I, I don't want to inherit either. So yeah, but I think they recognize it as that's just the game that you play. They knew it and they weren't wrong in recognizing that that's how the system works. And then there's just the question of that as we've kind of opened our eyes to the people that it doesn't work for. I think for me, there's a, a something that they didn't have the privilege to look at, which is what then do we do for those who are left out of that system? So, Albert, how did you make sense of the crisis that you're talking about between this relationship you have with your family and them very intentionally putting you in the best 
possible schools that they can. And also your feeling of being called to living in space in a different kind of community. Yeah. So the, the way I've come to understand is that part of the dynamic that happens in making these school choices is that I was choosing between how do I love my family and how do I honor this call to justice that recognizes that the systems that we live in are broken and that I think we're called to do something about that. But the question was, am, am I willing to sacrifice family for the sake of this call to justice? And, and that, honestly, there, there wasn't an easy way for me to resolve that. Like, which one's more important? Like you had to choose one or the other. Right. I mean, this was one place where it felt like they, it was coming right up against each other. It's like I could either choose a quote unquote good school, like a resource school for my children, or I could choose one that was less resourced for the sake of justice. And I mean, there wasn't a way to, to choose a resource school and an unresourced school at the same time. But so what I came to was that the way that my faith kind of informs me is that there's this idea of a family and that the family of God includes everyone. And so there was this idea that I'd been going at it with a sense of how do I protect my particular family? How do I kind of nurture and make sure my daughter gets everything she needs? And so the natural desire then was to go move and try to send her to a different resource school. But then kind of what my, my faith informs me of is that our family actually extends beyond just our blood family. And so the, the call then for me was to recognize that as I'm thinking about family. The, the reality that, that I was convicted of was that my family isn't just my blood family, but that there are actual family that we have befriended and that we have fallen in love with. That family is bigger and that part of investing in this school and part of choosing this school is because there are family members. So that's how I resolved the family justice thing. It was just that this is my family. I'm not the, you know, it's not like I'm the father of all these children, but there's, there's siblings. There's a sense of connection there. So really this this conflict between faith and family or, or faith and justice was really resolved by broadening your sense of family, of who counts as family. Yeah. My faith back, background, which is Christian, kind of led me to this idea that love comes close. It also has this idea, and this isn't just my tradition, this is multiple faith traditions and biology, genetics, all point to the idea that that sense of family doesn't extend just to our blood family, that actually this relationship between myself and the neighborhood that I had I became part of my neighbors was actually extended to them as well. That family is bigger than blood. Family is bigger than just the people who share my last name. Um, and that that was actually an invitation to think about it differently. One way to think about it was, am I willing to sacrifice my family, my kids for the sake of my values? Uh, and instead, I like what Nicole Hannah-Jones said, well, then who's, whose kids do we sacrifice? And if there is a sense of that other kids belong to my family, then there is actually uh, a real ethical choice of saying that if I leave a school for a better one, what does that mean about the family that I'm leaving behind? Is there an abandonment of family that I'm willing to accept as a way to receive all the advantages that my children can get? Because if we left that school, it didn't mean just making a kind of a choice for my kids. It meant leaving Carmen and Natalia and Juan Carlos and Brian. And that was the point where I felt that invitation to embrace family as something bigger was what um, ultimately led me to choose this school. Um, Maybe I guess the next question would be, was this school that you ended up sending your daughter to, was it the sacrifice that you expected? I would say it wasn't actually. And I am happily discovering is that schools that people often overlook or don't choose because the demographics aren't don't look like they're privileged or they don't look like they're resourced are actually abundant in terms of different kinds of resources. Like the families that are at this school are the families that I'm happily want my children to be growing up next to. The reality is that as I move into these spaces, I'm realizing that, yeah, there are, are mothers and fathers that love their children just as much as I love my children. Um, and they're willing to do anything for their kids, just the way I'm willing to do anything for my kids. And uh, I love being around that. I love that my children get to grow up knowing those families. That feels significant to me. And it's a, so in, in level of sacrifice, I wouldn't call it sacrifice. I would just say that we've been exposed to gifts that we didn't expect we would find. Um, the generosity that's present has been 
surprising and really beautiful just how much folks are willing to offer even from within limited means so it's been uh yeah it's been beautiful on that level and uh, i'm actually really grateful for it and the, the education has been solid what do your parents think that <laughs> that's a good question my parents initially weren't super excited about it the the positive has been that ultimately they've come and they visited and it's been they've been pleasantly surprised by the level of education my parents took a little while um, to come around to accepting it but now they i think they feel really good about it they're actually uh, some of the biggest supporters of our school mm. i think what made sense to my parents was when i told them that you you always taught me that that growing up my family was bigger than just our family. You know, we had aunts, we had uncles, and we had grandmas, grandpas that were that I grew up with. And everybody called everybody auntie, you called everybody uncle. And my faith is teaching me that actually that extends even further. So that the thing you started teaching me about, which is family is bigger than just our family, my faith is teaching me that it extends really wide to to the rest of the world. And so they've actually really embraced these new classmates and friends and family uh, that are part of this school. So my mom was volunteering in the classrooms. My, my wife's parents were volunteering and helping teach uh, reading and, uh, and math in the classrooms as well. There's the sense that if folks make the kind of shift from realizing that the, the family that we have isn't just the folks that look like us, but actually can extend beyond that. There's actually this huge kind of willingness and uh, generosity that we can tap into that that ha- has enormous power to kind of change how we think about stuff if if we can redefine who is our family yeah who we should be fighting yeah sort of harness that harness that deep desire to to help family and to go to bat for our family yeah yeah no i, I think that I, I think family is so powerful in terms of the, there's a visceral desire just like you were saying to fight for family and then and if there's a shift to extend that that power and that kind of that protectiveness to a larger body i've seen it to be really powerful Mm -hmm. Mm. and maybe that's why love can't happen from a distance i mean that's that's why proximity is so important yeah because otherwise how does your family see any connection to the latinx kid down the block exactly if you're not there sort of in community exactly and i feel like i'm living out their values the way they would want the fullness of their values, which is the idea that family doesn't give up on fa- family. And I just have a different, a, a little broader picture of family these days. And I hope that I'm making them proud because the, the fullness of what they taught me is uh, what I'm trying to live out by not abandoning the family that I've made out here in my neighborhood. Mm. So Albert, do you feel like your kids are getting different kinds of things than you did growing up? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're getting, um, they are super comfortable interacting with folks regardless of race or class. Um, I often talk to my other friends who run in different, more kind of affluent circles, and they, they worry about the materialism that is present um, with their kids. Our kids are, are very used to being around families where everything that they get are hand-me-downs. And so they uh, kind of similarly, they just, they just get their clothes from whoever um, wore them last and they've never complained about it. I love that about my kids. I love that they don't look at someone and compare based on uh, kind of what level of material goods they have. Uh, so I think those are those are values that you can't put a uh, I don't know a, a measure on it, but I, I I just think they're really beautiful. And you know they're picking up Spanish little by little here here and there, so they're used to uh, people speaking different languages. So yeah, ultimately I think it's just that sense that they have a sense of appreciation, and, and, and it's almost like this sense of appreciation might have been harder for you to instill in your daughter in a more homogeneous or more privileged environment. Right. If other every person's house she went to, it was like, oh, you you've got your own bedroom, or you got uh, you've got all this stuff. I think she would probably feel more inclined to expect that as as that as her her lifestyle as well. It just makes me realize that there's uh, the the level of gratitude that you get isn't based on the kind of the amount of money that you spend on it. It's, it's there's uh, there's simple things that can that can, you can be grateful for, and I think this neighborhood has taught us that. How has the experience been for your kids? They they don't have a lot of other points of comparison, it sounds like, but how has this been for them? 
Yes. Yeah, they don't have a lot of points of comparison. So uh, for the most part, they love it. They're, they're content. They've adjusted pretty well. The one thing I will say is that there was a moment where I actually thought I'd screwed up in, uh, completely, which was when my daughter was in second grade. For whatever reason, I asked her what she did during lunchtime. And she said to me, oh, I just go stand by the flagpole and I wait for uh, recess or lunch to be over. And then I go back to class. And I said, oh, is that just today? And she says, no, that's every day. Mm. And what I realized at that moment was that this is what she's been doing. This was in second grade. And this is, had been her way of managing uh, kind of recess and free time since she was in kindergarten. And I had no idea that this is what was going on because I'd been in the classrooms and, I, and, she's, and she's fine in the classrooms while there's some structure. But as soon as it was unstructured and there was time to just play, she had no friends. And it, it was in, in that moment in second grade where I just pictured her every day for the last three years, I realized going to the, uh, going to the flagpole and just waiting out that time when she didn't have any friends to play with before she could go back to, uh, to class, that just broke my heart. Yeah. And it was in that moment where I said, uh-oh. What have I done? Where I, I, yeah, where it's just, yeah, that's, that, that's one place where I've said, I think I fucked up. I think the thing I feared the most about what this would do to my children, it is happening. And she has no friends. And I, and, uh, and I didn't know if it was just her personality type, but it was, there was this part of me that wondered if I'd done it differently, if I had sent her to uh, a school where everybody looked like her or there are more people that look like her, would she, not have to go to recess and stand by the flagpole and wait till it was over. So that was my second crisis moment where I, re- where I thought, crap, this might not be working out. Yeah, that's a really big one. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that it's one thing to feel like you can supplement for academics or things like that, but uh, it's a hard thing to supplement for friendships. Mm-hmm. So, so what did you do? So... So I had about a week of just not sleeping, <laughs> not sleeping, not uh, of just kind of, uh, yeah, just, uh, I, I was holding it. I, I was holding it every day. Just as I sent her off, I just thought this is, this is another day where this is what she'll do to pass the time in recess and at lunch again. And I, uh, I, I told my wife at that time, thankfully my wife, she doesn't get as emotional as I get. She doesn't get as, uh, flustered as I, I do around these things. She said, she just said, she'll be all right. You know, <laughs> so since I grew up in a particular educational experience of high achieving public schools, that was my only experience. So I assume that if, if anything goes wrong, it's because I'm not sending my kids to those same high achieving public schools, but she'd gone to uh, public schools in a more uh, kind of lower income area. Uh, and so she wasn't as flustered by it. I mean, she was concerned but she felt like it would be something that she would be able to get through. And throughout this whole process, it's been my wife who's kind of steadied the ship every time I get a little bit uh, freaked out by what's going on. And so we we made it through second grade and it's still with, without having a friend. So, but, she, but we, we stuck with it. And then, and then in third grade, she made one friend and that uh, that made all the difference. You made It finally felt like she had someone to be with someone to uh, hang out with during recess. But yeah, th- th- it was a long, long year, that one, and a long, uh, long sense of questioning and doubting our decisions during that moment. But mm. And it's hard to know in that moment, like how much of this is, is my kid, right? Yeah. yeah. Who, you know, might prefer to be alone. Yeah. Would my kid behave this way if she were in privileged segregated school, right? Right, right. How much is the school? How much is my kid? How much is just this moment in time? Yeah. Yeah. How much is it maybe just this cohort of kids that she's just like not bonding with or ah, it's very hard to tease those things out. Yes. But I think we're really quick to say it's just a bad fit for my kid. This whole school is a bad fit for my kid. Yeah. Especially when it feels like everyone else is making different choices. Yeah. Like if if everyone, if if everyone else is that it's, it's that sense of like a, uh, what was that place, that place where you can call a friend or you can survey the audience? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Who wants to be a millionaire? <laughs> Who wants to be a millionaire? Right. So if you survey the audience around this question, there's a certain, there's a whole movement that's going to say, 
it's the school, it's the school, it's the school, because they're all sending their kids to to the best schools or the quote unquote best schools, the most resource schools that they can find. And, and so in that moment, when something goes wrong with my kid and I've chosen something that's different from everybody else, there is a strong sense of oh, maybe they were right. Maybe we should have just done what everybody else was doing and that would have fixed this. Yeah. But it's not like the those well-resourced schools don't have a kid sitting by the flagpole with a, right, a right. friend. I mean, right. That right. happens everywhere. Yes, it's true. And yet it's those moments that to choose for something that is going against the flow, whenever something goes wrong, you can assume that it's because you're doing what nobody else is doing. Right, right. When if you're doing what everybody else is doing, when something goes wrong, then you, you've got to find some other explanation for yeah. it. I mean, you, you still have those moments of doubt where you think, well, why are we heading this direction? And it feels like everybody else is, and it was, it's like those, if it was a scary movie and everybody's running one direction and you happen to be going the other direction, there's, you're, you're usually the one that's, that's going to get eaten probably. But it, uh, <laughs> so there's, there's, there's those moments where you wonder, if I, am I the guy that's, uh, that's going, going down in this movie? Albert will check the basement. Yeah, yeah. So there, there are moments. So your daughter's in eighth grade now. Yeah. Is is she still at the flagpole? No, she's no longer at the flagpole. She's learned, Third grade was a game changer for her. The one, one friend that she made became, by fourth grade, became like five friends. And by fifth grade became 10 friends. And the, and that, the demographics of the school didn't change, you know. So all her friends in that school, at least, were largely Latinx and a few... Uh, there, there actually were a few Asian folks there. And then, but yeah, the demographics didn't change, but her maturity or the confidence that came from having one friend seemed to make a difference for her. So she's got a ton of friends now and she fits in really well socially and we're not concerned about that anymore. So thankfully we stuck around and we were able to, uh, to recognize that it wasn't the demographics that kept her from being learned how to make friends. Those didn't change and she's matured into someone who can make friends. That was a nice thing to realize. That's great. Which is often true with a lot of the stuff with our kids, right? They're pretty resilient and they're able to kind of figure things out. I think the parental instinct is to go in and kind of change everything as soon as you see something that feels not perfect for them. But I was grateful that I have a partner who's willing to say, yeah, they're more resilient than you think um, and stuff with it. So. Yeah, I feel like, feel like every every couple needs one of those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hey, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Take a deep breath. Yeah, Take yeah, a deep yeah, breath. yeah. You need to, one, one, one needs to freak out and one needs to calm down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think what's interesting about, about this part of your story too is that you're framing it in terms of resilience. And I've certainly mm-hmm. done that a lot with some of the struggles my kids have had, right? Yeah. But I'm wondering also if she learned something about herself during this flagpole time, like if she might have gained something from this difficult period of time. Yeah. Like that this would ultimately be a better thing, not just, oh, but she'll be all right. Right. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, you'll I, find I, out you know, when she writes you those horrible letters from high school. Like you that's ruined right, everything, that's right. Dad. That's right. Yeah. We talk about more in the sense of, oh, you used to be shy and now you've grown a lot of confidence. I haven't asked her why. I don't know that she would be able to articulate why uh, the there's a difference there. Actually, one one lesson that I think is true for me too is that that hard things don't last forever. You know that you can overcome things if you stay with them. And she has actually a an experience of that. So if I'd taken her out at that point, she would never have learned that lesson. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah, yeah. You said you sort of felt called to expand your definition of family. Yeah. And called to be close to your community. So one of the things that I struggle a lot with in these sort of conversation around what choices I'm making and and where to send my kids is recognizing that my presence is not sort of instantly solving the world of of issues that I'm not. I don't have the capacity to save my school or undo this huge systemic weight of oppression, but feel like there's some part for me to do. How do you sort of try to balance those things? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good question. Before I had kids, when we were married, and I kind of had this calling to live in solidarity with with our community and to kind of explore that as a call for justice. Uh, I think that that was an individual call, kind of a personal call, and and in some ways kind of a a very idealistic kind of like, I want to do good in the world. But a big shift has 
happened with me in terms of humbling uh, experiences of lots of failure where I've tried to do good and realized that I wasn't the best person for it. So early on when we started helping out in the school, it was my first year. My daughter had just started kindergarten and we decided we're going to go in and we're going to bring all our resources to bear to support this school. I went into one of the first PTA meetings and uh, made an announcement saying, hey, we're going to do this for the teachers. We're going to repaint their uh, workspace. We're going to we're going to get some food and we're going to treat them to this really fantastic lunch. And then all the parents who were there who'd been clearly been there for years, they, they all looked at me and signaled to me that they hadn't been waiting for me to come and save the day. There was actually quite a bit of other stuff going on. And so there, there, was, there was a good amount of displeasure that I was experiencing as I was making this grand announcement uh, of folks who rightly felt like they were the ones who had invested in this school, had invested their blood, sweat, and tears. And then who was this guy to come in um, and say that things are going to change around here? <laughs> so, one, I've, I've failed a lot. Two, I haven't recognized the gifts and the resources that are already present in the community. There is enormous resources, and there's been humbling on my end to recognize that I'm not the one who brings them. At the same time, I do feel like there's a level of responsibility for folks who have been given a little bit more or a lot more in terms of education, financial, economics to share that. Yeah, I just feel like those of us who have a lot don't have a lot just because we worked hard for it. There were systems in place that have made it easier for folks who have a lot to keep what they have and to grow what they have a lot easier than folks who have less than that. And so if I've benefited from structures that are inherently unjust, then it's not a work of charity to do giving and to um, do donations, but it's a, a work of reparations and a restitution that just feels like it's an appropriate mm-hmm. response to to injustice. That's interesting. Reparations versus charity is a yeah is an interesting framework for thinking about this. I I do worry though that it sounds that it could sound a bit like saviorism. How is it not saviorism? Yeah, no, that's a great, great question, because I think there's a framing of it that that's appealing on one level. I grew up with a lot of movies that like what were those movies that were super inspiring about the teacher that would just come in and save the school, like Dangerous Minds or Stand and Deliver or yeah, like so all of them. So there's there is a a really there's a narrative that's really appealing about feeling like, oh, I could be that person who comes in and does good and transforms everything. So I think that's really seductive, but it does kind of remove power and dignity from the folks who are present, who are actually struggling for their own selves and and maybe not looking for a savior. So saviorism would be the idea, I guess, that I have all the answers and I'll, I'll come in and I'll fix things by somehow my choices then kind of what ultimately heals everything. And two, that there's no existing resources here that anyone can draw from. And so I feel like on one level, that the, the word saviorism is, is appropriate, and it's, it's used to kind of call out folks who have a have been guilty of this, um, and probably continue to be guilty of this at some points of feeling like a arrogant attitude of not acknowledging the gifts that are already present there, and feeling like I have all the things that are needed to save everything. So I think that clearly that's a broken way of thinking, and I think part partly what's dispelled that notion for me is as I've come in, I've seeing gifts that are already there, that are present, that are in these spaces where um, I previously thought there weren't gifts or resources, and I clearly haven't had all the answers either. But I would say that the accusation of saviorism can be thrown around a little bit too easily to kind of excuse other folks from feeling like, well, then that there's no point at all kind of trying to move into this space or trying to do what one is able to do to contribute. So saviorism actually f- feels like it's a way to say that what's most important is us to feel good about ourselves for what we're doing. And I think one corrective to saviorism for me is the idea that it's not about charity and it's not about what makes us or myself feel good. And this is where family feels like the appropriate metaphor for me is that in family, you don't care for them to be a savior, you, you care for them because there's a responsibility that you have towards somebody. And I, I feel like that is more the, the call is that is, do we have a responsibility to one another that recognizes both the resources that we've been given and the resources that are existing? So as opposed to saviorism, family feels like it's something where there are points where 
I'm going to have something that you need and I'll offer that. And there'll be times when you have something that I need that you'll offer me. And the blessing and the gift of family is a sense of mutuality. And I think that that accusation of saviorism, I think it taints it by saying that any effort to be responsible for somebody can become saviorism. I don't, I don't think that's accurate. Yeah. It's like the, the fear of the accusation of saviorism can be a way to avoid or, or excuse inaction and disengagement. I mean, I think right. we should definitely all be fearful about saviorism because it's real, but yeah. the corrective can't be just to sort of back into your own space and hunker down out of fear of you know doing it wrong. So for me, what's been uh, significant or helpful is this quote by Howard Thurman. I, I'm going to butcher it, but it's something like, I cannot be who I am meant to be until you are who you are meant to be that there is an interconnection between the well-being of others and my own well-being. And I, I find that to be really convicting, that it's part of how I get healed, part of how I become more whole is that I invest in other people. I am more in touch with my best self when I am giving or taking what has been given to me and not hoarding it for myself. Like that, for whatever reason, like, the selfish desire to kind of hold on to stuff or to even hold on to stuff for my children, you, I get more twisted or I get less grateful. I feel less than who I'm supposed to be. And then in the giving process, there's this recovering of my own self, this, this healing of myself that happens that I find is necessary. Mm-hmm. So there's the, the, uh, this idea of being connected to one another that I can't be who I'm meant to be until you're who you're meant to be feels like a framework that helps me think about this. Yeah. Except that we don't often actually give up that much either. It's in many ways about reprioritization. Yeah. Yeah. But not actually the giving up of it's complicated. It feels right. really complicated. <laughs> it, it's no, it's totally complicated because there's so much that our families have gained from being in the spaces where they're at. And I was just having this conversation of, uh, with some folks yesterday about saying that under resourced feels like the wrong term to talk about our communities because they're abundantly resourced on one level. It's just they don't have a lot of money. Differently resourced. Differently resourced, yeah. And so I get to be the recipient of all those beautiful resources and all those gifts that are part of, parts of these communities. And at the same time, yeah, how do you talk about it? Because sometimes it does feel like sacrifice. Just the other day, we decided to keep our, our son in the school that he's currently at, even though a space opened up at this other school that uh, was his first choice, that is a little bit uh, more higher achieving academically. And uh, so there's that moment where we feel the pain of not, every time you don't choose for the thing that everybody else wants, um, you feel that little sense of, "Mm," that there's a sense of uh, loss, a little bit of loss. And it's the reality is that I'm privileged enough to have the opportunity to say, I could have had that other thing, whereas other people never even have the chance to choose for that. So it's one of those first world problems, but, but there's a little pang of loss. Yeah, that's real. It's, it's like you have to make this decision over and over again, right? To choose proximity, to choose to be close. And, and it's a hard decision and, and one that not even other sort of justice-oriented people are making. Yeah, so we're a super progressive part of the country with strong values for equity, strong values uh, for education, strong values around uh, anti-racism. And yet the conversations that I have with primarily white parents have been, how do we support other schools and kind of make movements towards equity without having to involve my child in the process so that they're removed from that philanthropy or that sacrifice. As I've been reading about education and all the efforts to fix education and kind of all the things that have been proposed and all the things that have failed. And I wonder sometimes if that's why it's so difficult to fix schools from a distance is that there's this effort to say, we're not going to integrate our schools, but we'll give those neighborhood schools just as good schools as the schools in white areas or in more resource areas. But there's no acceptance of the interconnectedness between the people that are, uh, that are the schools that one, one's trying to kind of improve. And I, I wonder sometimes if the only way that schools actually do get better, the only way that education improves is when the goals are fully aligned, when uh, there's no difference between those kids and our kids, that uh, our kids and those kids are all literally in the same environment, in the same schools, that the idea of sending content without sending relationship actually ends up being why we 
end up never fixing schools because we've never fully invested. We've invested resources that didn't include ourselves and we didn't fully have skin in the game. But maybe uh, for something as significant as education as the developing of our children, we need to literally have um, some skin in the game. We literally need to have our children next to the children of the people that we claim to want to serve. I wonder if actually that disconnect between where I send my kids and where other kids go is insurmountable, or I don't know if it's insurmountable, but it's it's not fully... It's an obstacle. It's an obstacle, yeah. It's an obstacle because there's still a distance. And because of that distance, there will always be a, a, a slight difference and a, maybe a, a really significant difference between what we offer to our own children and what we want to give to other, other kids. Yeah. Well, we, we can't thank you enough for, for sharing so openly and honestly your, your experience yeah. and your little window on it. No, I'm super grateful. I'm grateful that you're having these conversations. It's kind of what Integrated Schools is about speaks to my heart. Well, really, really grateful that you came on and shared with us. I'm really grateful for Albert sharing his experiences. Yes. What what stood out to you, Andrew? Well, so you know, so it was a, it was just a little thing, but it really stuck with me this, you know, his sort of issue with framing his kids' school as under-resourced. Yeah. And how that that wasn't really accurate, right? Yeah, I mean, families have a lot to offer, just not maybe cold hard cash. <laughs> yeah, I think it, you know, it ties nicely into this idea of family. We all may have different gifts we all bring to one another and and I think too often when when white or privileged families, when we enter integrating spaces, we have this tendency to only count certain things as gifts. Yeah. And then and then to view the lack of those specific things as indicative of some sort of deficit, as a sign of a problem. Yeah. And I think this is really a central piece of of colonization, right? Of taking over a school. Yeah. The way that we value certain offerings and certain aesthetics as good without valuing others at all. Right. And this is real. But then, you know, it's also real that some schools do have more material resources, and that translates into certain kinds of opportunities, and some schools do have more of those, like period. Right. And so, you know, how do we talk about this? It's, Im- it's important to acknowledge the disparities because they're real without undervaluing the gifts, that nuance. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're not so good at nuance. <laughs> we are not good at nuance. But, you know, how do we say, quote, schools that have more stuff that white and privileged people value and that often really jibes with power and opportunity for the kinds of success that white and or privileged people value, even when we say we value other things too, unquote. That's that's a really big mouthful. I guess, you know, I don't know. I think we're, we're reaching for a nomenclature that is just more sophisticated than where we are right now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Good school, bad school, resource school, under resource school, desirable school, undesirable school. These sort of, you know, broad categories are are really problematic yeah. when we're trying to classify something as important as a school. That's right. You know, the, the idea that you could sort of boil down all of the things you get from going to a school into like pass fail, good, bad dichotomy. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know, like it, it might feel good, but it, it ignores the complexity of a school. So uh, you know, th- there's maybe there's some like value in the discomfort and the struggle to find better language because, you know, at least it makes us more aware of, of the impact that those words can have. I think that's right. And, you know, I think this is why I found Albert's framing of family really helpful in in order to make sense of the tensions he felt between choosing this school for his kids and honoring his parents' sacrifice to come to the U.S. for the, quote, education Albert made his peace by extending his definition of family. Right. Right. The idea that proximity matters, that love comes close, right? This is yeah. it's this is the part of school integration that feels the most powerful and sort of important to me. Right. We we can talk about the redistribution of resources and we definitely should talk about that. Like that is that is key. But it I think until we're together, until we are close, making meaningful change on the resources front just doesn't feel that likely. I mean, history. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. I mean, right. Fi- fixing schools from a distance hasn't worked to get black and brown kids equal, much less equitable access to resources and opportunities that relate to power. Right. Yeah. But also, and I think, you know, even more importantly, fixing schools from a distance doesn't get us closer to realizing the promise of an integrated society. Yeah. You know, we, if we are going to deeply and truly believe in shared humanity, 
we have to be together. We have to be close. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think that I think the notion of family and saviorism was really interesting. And and we talk about this a lot, that school integration is good for our kids and good for our country, but neither too much. Right. But I think family is a really good corrective here. Right, right. If we feel responsibility for each other and we share what we have to share, then that that doesn't feel like saviorism. Yeah. Right. Like I mean, I don't feel like I'm saving my kids or my wife when I clean the pantry out and I don't I don't feel saved if they were to ever say clean up the dog poop. <laughs> We talk about this a lot in our house about being on a team, right? Mm -hmm. That each team member might be doing different stuff, but all toward a shared goal and a goal that we all have both a stake and a responsibility for. Right, right. Responsibility, service, helping out. All all of that is possible without being a savior. Yeah. It's it's sort of fundamentally about being a community member, right? A family member. Right. And I I appreciate what he said that the fear of saviorism can't be an excuse to not try. Yeah. I I feel like we're so worried about doing this, quote, right, about being the, quote, good, quote, ally. So many air quotes. So many air (laughs) quotes. But we're so worried about doing this right that it sometimes feels easy to forget that we actually just are all people together. Because when we're talking about actual people with names and stories and likes and dislikes and quirks and personalities, it doesn't feel like charity. Family or team isn't charity work. Yeah, no, it's about a deeper commitment to the the well-being of people that you care about. And, yeah. I, you know, I appreciate that Albert took this understanding to to not just caring about family sort of now in the present, but also looking at how the past has created current circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he said, I loved, he said, um, you know, if he has benefited from systems that are inherently unjust, then giving back isn't about charity. It's about reparations. Yeah. And, you know, he's not the only one who has linked integration with reparations. And in our next episode, we'll hear from Professor Justin Hansford, who makes a similar argument. Yeah. And it's, an, it's a very provocative argument that Professor Hansford makes. But let's just leave this here as a little tease for next time. That's right. Tune in. <laughs> uh, I guess, you know, the last piece of Albert's story that I that stuck with me after our conversation was his reflections on his daughter's resiliency. Oh, that flagpole story. You know, as a parent, my heart just broke for his kid. And I also just really felt for Albert. Yeah. Luckily for him, his wife was able to keep him off the ledge. Yes. And I think that's that's always helpful. You know, somebody to have someone else who has a different perspective in a difficult time, even if it's just to sort of trade off who gets to be the crazy one in, in, in each moment. <laughs> yeah. But uh, somebody who has, you know, the faith and the belief that hard things don't last forever. I think we all need to hear that. Yeah, you know, and I think questioning whether this was a difficult time because of the fact that it was an integrating school or whether his daughter might have been at the flagpole at a white privileged segregated school, it's one that we don't easily ask of ourselves. Right. Because we think of this choice to desegregate our kids as a risk, everything kind of becomes centered around the school. Yeah, and the, and the narratives of the privileged parents around us is always one of questioning that choice. And, yeah. And then that choice becomes the target for intervention Whereas, you know, at a privileged school, our attention would be on all the other reasons that might be causing her to be hanging out at the flagpole. Yeah. So this made me think a lot about the the research on intensive parenting that Dr. Clarko shared in the last episode. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the Beth series, too, right? When Albert's son was offered a spot at another school, it's like we are constantly confronted with this not not just a choice for, but also like a, a push to try to get the quote unquote best for our kids and just our kids. Yeah. It's never ending, right? White supremacy culture is relentless. Yes. And Courtney, do you know what else is relentless? Bills. (laughs) And that's why we need your help, listeners. (laughs) If you appreciate these stories, the work that goes into sharing them for free, please support our podcast. You can donate on the website, integratedschools.org, or become a patron, patreon.com slash integratedschools. That was a very nice segue. Why, thank you. (laughs) And here's Matt Gonzalez. Matt is an Integrated Schools board member and just general overall badass educational justice advocate. If any of you are listening in New York City, you will likely know his name. My name is Matt Gonzalez. I'm director of the Integration and Innovation Initiative at the NYU Metropolitan Center for Research on Equity and the Transformation of Schools. I'm uh, an advocate and educator 
and a policy nerd who has been working towards integrated schools in New York City and across the country for a number of years. Uh, I serve on the board of integrated schools because it is a critical aspect of the broader movement for integration. Uh, while much of the policy and advocacy work must be intentionally led by those most directly impacted by segregation, I think it is really critical to acknowledge the role white parents have played in upholding and perpetuating segregation. Integrated schools really leans into this history and these tensions and builds a community of parents who ground efforts in anti-racism. And it is really powerful to see parents committed to making integration work and, and live and thrive. I really believe that white folks need to speak to white folks, understanding that there are limitations on what people of color can say and do to really transform the perspectives of white folks. I do know that white lips to white ears are actually very powerful. And so what I'm, what I'm committed to doing is advising and supporting and helping shape those conversations that white allies and co-conspirators are going to have with other white people. And so um, I don't want to be the one having those conversations, and I don't think it's my job or my work to do that. But I do think I have a responsibility to work with my anti-racist white allies to ensure that they have the tools and resources and support to really pull together that 3.5% of white families we need to really support integration. So in order to, to sustain and develop a podcast and sustain this network that has just been rapidly growing requires resources. So what we need is folks to dig deep. Your donation will ensure that we are able to continue moving this work forward to preserve and create a better democracy, I'm not content and, and refuse to let the system of segregation exist. I refuse to let that be the society that we live in and that future children of mine will grow up in. And I know that there are adults, there are parents, there are educators, there are many young folks who are also committed to that transformation. And we all have to do that together. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, listeners. Let us know what you thought of the episode. Send us an email, hello to integratedschools.org. Leave us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or join us on social media at Integrated Schools. And please keep sharing this podcast with your friends. Yeah, our reach is all organic, homegrown, locally sourced. But basically, it's thanks to you all. And we are grateful to be with you as we try to know better and do better. See you next time.